Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the Saga of World War II, a Cass's Belly Project. Sorry it's been so long since our last episode. I've started working again and have found myself a little pressed for time. I've been working on this one for a couple months now, but it's about one of my favorite campaigns of the Second World War, North Africa. Not only are the place names fun to say, Tobruk, Sidi Burani, Benghazi, but for some reason, I don't know why, it's fascinating to me. Maybe it's because it involves players and geography that we don't talk about much in America, especially the early campaign with names like O'Connor, Wavell, and Graziani that would be eclipsed by the war's end, but who were instrumental in these early days. Perhaps that's because the largest land campaign in history, Operation Barbarossa, began just after this, or maybe it's because men like Rommel and Montgomery would cut their teeth in the later North Africa campaigns. Regardless, I'm very excited to bring you Episode 9, Fox Killed in the Open. Frankly and definitely, there is danger ahead. Danger against which we must prepare. defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. As October of 1940 was drawing to a close, the war was going well for Hitler but deeply embedded structural flaws were beginning to show themselves. Like a tower built on a poor foundation, Hitler's empire was not sustainable. First off, the Battle of Britain was a failure. The British were not defeated and remained as indignant as ever. Hitler being a man preoccupied with decisive battle seemed to have lost interest in defeating the British, for now. For whatever reason, a protracted war of attrition did not interest him, so he turned his gaze away from the islands and towards Russia. His vision of Lebensraum dominated his thinking, and defeating the Russian bear was the key to achieving it. Operation Barbarossa was taking shape in his mind, but Il Duce would prove to be more of a hindrance than a boon in the coming years. First, the Italian dictator could hardly contain his contempt for Hitler's successes. He viewed himself as the senior partner in their fascist cabal and detested Hitler for stealing glory and prestige. He even attempted to warn the Dutch and Belgians prior to the German invasion as a means of defacing Hitler's image as a conqueror. Then he ordered two failed invasions almost back to back. In September of 1940, he ordered Marshal Graziani, the not quite hero of the Ethiopian campaign, to invade Egypt. Then in October, ordered his men to invade Greece. The Italian invasion of Greece was a muddled disaster. 200,000 Italian troops marched south from occupied Albania, expecting little resistance and a quick victory. Of course, almost nothing guarantees defeat more readily than confidence and easy conquest. Though the Greeks had virtually no air force or heavy equipment, they did have a motivated, well-trained, and tactically proficient corps of light mountain troops. Rather than fight the Italians at the border, Metaxes, the Greek prime minister, devised a defense in depth. The Greeks allowed the invaders to march deep into their territory, along narrow valleys until their supply lines were stretched and their formations loosened. 
Then they began to harass the marching columns. From the heights above the valleys, they lobbed mortar and artillery shells and began chasing the Italians back to Albania. Twelve Greek divisions repulsed 20 Italian. The war in Greece would be put on hold until Hitler could spare troops to rescue the Italians. Hitler was unsettled by Mussolini's rash and ill-prepared offensives. Not only did it derail his timeline for invading the Soviet Union, but it destabilized the Balkans diplomatically. He had devoted significant diplomatic capital in bringing Hungary and Romania into his sphere, even if they remained ostensibly neutral. Mussolini's failed gambit hurt Germany's wider position in the region. Unfortunately for the Axis, the situation could not be immediately rectified due to the stalled war in North Africa. With the British turning their home island into a veritable fortress, Hitler needed somewhere else to engage them in a decisive battle and score a major victory. North Africa made the perfect target. Italy already had control of Libya, and it lay next to British-controlled Egypt, the home of the Suez Canal and the gateway to the wider British Middle East, rich with oil. Always self-conscious of his position as the junior partner in the alliance with Germany, Mussolini hoped the invasions of Greece and Egypt could redeem his image. Of course, they had the opposite effect. They cemented his image in history as a military hack. The Italian invasion of British Egypt began on September 7, 1940, after much delaying by Marshal Graziani. Only after an ultimatum from Il Duce himself did the Marshal launch the offensive. 100,000 Italian troops advanced like molasses towards empty British outposts. There was no great battle, but rather a series of small skirmishes at the flanks of the Italian columns. After advancing about 60 miles over the course of five days, the Italians halted and established a defensive position at Sidi Barani. Graziani was a cautious leader and always felt more comfortable tending his forces. He lacked the drive for victory that defined so many of the great commanders of his era. So there he sat, for two months, ostensibly invading Egypt. Facing Graziani was General Sir Archibald Wavell, commander of the British Middle East Theatre and considered one of the best officers in all the British Army. No man could have been better suited to defend the Middle East than Wavell. He was a graduate of RMA Sandhurst and had served across the Empire. He commissioned into the Black Watch, been stationed in South Africa, and fought in India, all before serving as a staff officer during the First World War. By the time he arrived in Cairo in 1939, to shore up the Middle East command. He had earned a reputation for professionalism and intelligence that was well-deserved. And he had his work cut out for him. His command was vast and encompassed half a dozen administrative areas, including Cyprus, Egypt, British Somaliland, Sudan, as well as free French forces in Syria. To defend all of this, he had an army of roughly 40,000 containing a single understrength armored division. When Wavell arrived in Egypt, he immediately set to preparing its defense. To the south sat 200,000 Italian troops in Ethiopia that had to be fended off. To this task, he set a nearly skeleton force along the rugged borders in Somaliland, Kenya, and Sudan. The real threat lay to the west. Italian Libya was the obvious jumping-off point for an Italian invasion of Egypt, and Wavell dispatched his lieutenant, General Richard O'Connor, to defend it. O'Connor was a bright and tenacious officer, and he established his forward position at Mersa Mutra. Like his boss, O'Connor had a sterling reputation within the army and was himself a graduate of RMA Sandhurst. He was born in India to an army officer and would spend his life in the service. He was a veteran of the First World War during which he commanded an infantry battalion. Though his decades of military service had prepared him well, neither he nor the Italians really knew much about desert war. They would soon learn its tough lessons together.
In all war, logistics is everything, but in the desert, this is especially true. In the barren wastes between villages, all resources have to be brought up long, snaking supply lines, but most important of all are water and fuel. Unlike in the fields of France or the hamlets of Eastern Europe, where water and sometimes food could be taken from the land, the desert offers no such relief. Even rain is a rare and valuable gift in the endless wastes of sun and sand. Men were limited to only a gallon of water a day and spent their lives covered in sand caked on by sweat. Tankers lived inside their vehicles, which became veritable ovens between the beating sun and their humming engines. Every soldier had to learn to live with sand and dust that entered every nook and cranny of man and machine. Desert war proved to be almost the opposite of trench war 25 years earlier. Rather than static, wet, and cold, it was mobile, hot, and dry, yet proved to be every bit as hellish. So now Wavell had armies closing in on him on two fronts. There was Graziani on his western flank, and the Duke of Aosta in the south. He had to make a move to relieve the pressure on him, so he sent one of his lieutenants to assess O'Connor's command at Mersomatra. Based on his findings, Wavell concluded that O'Connor was prepared to launch an offensive, and directed O'Connor to begin making preparations on October 22nd. Graziani's slow pace and total lack of initiative provided the Middle East command with the time it needed to organize and reinforce. By the time O'Connor launched his offensive in early December, his armored division was brought up to full strength and had new, modern I-type tanks. He also had additional divisions from India and Australia, as well as a brigade from New Zealand. Meanwhile, Graziani had made no progress besides fortifying his position, but even that he did not do terribly well because his defensive positions were not mutually supporting. O'Connor would exploit this mistake mercilessly. Operation Compass, as O'Connor's attack on Sidi Barani would come to be known, was both audacious and a demonstration of brilliant staff work. Oftentimes, the quick thinking of bold commanders is what catches the attention of military history enthusiasts, but rarely did the staff officers of campaigns gone by get their due, and Operation Compass is a prime example of how good staff work can lead to victory. O'Connor's staff used their time wisely in preparing Operation Compass and fulfilled all of what the modern U.S. Army calls the six warfighting functions. They had in place an effective mission command method, but they developed a keen movement and maneuver plan. Their movement and maneuver scheme was only possible, however, due to proper intelligence preparation of the battlefield. The British knew that their air arm was inferior to the Italians, and so had to develop a maneuver plan that took that into account. They were able to mitigate this by taking advantage of the fact that the Italian defensive positions did not offer each other mutually supporting fire. In this way, their intelligence prep allowed them to develop an effective movement and maneuver plan. By driving columns between enemy positions, they are able to exploit this weakness and render enemy air power ineffective. In all the confusion of the offensive, broken lines and plumes of dust and smoke, Italian pilots would be unable to positively identify ground targets. Without proper anti-air capability, this allowed O'Connor to fulfill the last warfighting function, protection. Additionally, O'Connor hoped that by attacking from within the Italian's defensive perimeter, he could instill panic and quickly disorganize his opponent. O'Connor's staff also incorporated the other warfighting functions into their plan. They had integrated fires that would concentrate on suppressing the Bewa camp during the initial assault, hopefully providing the armor and infantry formations more opportunity to advance without being detected. Where the planners of Operation Compass really excelled, though, was in the unsexy warfighting function, sustainment. During the Second World War, tanks didn't have all of the life support measures they have today. 
Columns weren't supported by tank carriers that delivered them to the battlefield, nor were they followed by sustainment vehicles that could repair them on the move. No, tanks had to actually drive wherever they were going, and in the harsh desert of North Africa, this was no small task. Tanks are notoriously fickle beasts and break down constantly. The dirt and grime of the Egyptian and Libyan deserts only accelerated this process. To mitigate this, O'Connor sustainers pre-positioned logistics dumps along the route to decrease attrition from maintenance issues. This would prove critical in exploiting the unmitigated success they would achieve. As dawn broke on December 9, 1940, Italian troops encamped at Sidi Barani awoke to the roar of artillery fire. As they raced to defend the camp, O'Connor's tanks and infantry were pressing the attack, not from the east, but from the southwest. Before they knew it, heavy British I-type tanks were bearing down on them and knocking out the few mediums they had. Within two hours, Nebewa had fallen, but the fighting raged on at the other Italian camps. O'Connor pushed his men forward to Tamar East and Tamar West, which would both capitulate by the morning of December 10th. With the outlying defenses destroyed, he could now attack Sidi Barani directly. On the morning of the 11th, O'Connor's men attacked in the midst of a sandstorm, and by that night had achieved all of their initial goals. They were hungry, thirsty, and filthy, but victory made it all worth it. In the wake of their success, they found themselves in the eerie ghost town of captured enemy defenses. There were mountains of unspent ammunition, guns left in place, stores of half-eaten rations, and all manner of everyday material from newspapers to half-written letters. And of course, there were now 38,000 prisoners of war that had to be marched back east. What had been intended to simply stutter the Italians had become a major operational success. Two Italian corps have been repulsed and 73 tanks captured. In comparison, the British only lost 624 men in the three days of fighting. O'Connor would not simply revel in his victory, though. He intended to exploit it. So he set his gaze upon Bardia, the veritable fortress to the northwest and the gateway to Benghazi and Tobruk. Unlike the assault on Sidi Barani, which achieved success by exploiting gaps between strong points, Bardia offered no such opportunities. It was a single fortress surrounded by miles of anti-tank ditches, barbed wire, and machine gun nests. Defending Bardia were 45,000 men and Gen General Electric Whiskers Borgonzoli, who intended to hold their ground to the last. So on the frigid morning of January 3, 1941, British heavy tanks began clanking toward the objective. They would not attack, though. Instead, just drive up and down the line, making as much of a ruckus as possible. They needed to convince the Italians an armored assault was pending, when in reality, it was the Australian infantry that would do the heavy lifting in this engagement. Under cover of darkness, and under the roar of tanks and artillery, the infantry advanced with the tools necessary to breach a mine-wire obstacle. Wire cutters and Bangalore torpedoes, tubes filled with high explosive to clear lanes through the objective. Before long, two lanes had been cleared and tanks and infantry were pouring into the breach. For the next 24 hours, the battle degraded into a knife fight, but the Imperial troops would come out victorious. For O'Connor, the most prized spoils of the battle were the 700 captured trucks. He was in desperate need of logistical assets as his supply lines grew ever longer. For the Australians, it was the hundreds of bottles of champagne that proved most popular. All of this success provided Wavell with a conundrum, though. Should he allow O'Connor to continue to advance and exploit his success, or should he divert his attention to Ethiopia in the south? He knew that a smart and agile enemy would take advantage of an outstretched and overextended opponent, but thus far he had seen no evidence that the Italians were such an adversary. 
Indeed, there were still almost 200,000 Italian soldiers in Libya, and nearly 1,500 guns. But instead of making the mistake of overestimating his opponent, he allowed O'Connor to do what he did best and drive the assault home on Tripoli. To get there, though, he would need to take several more key towns along the way. The first of these was Tobruk. It lay along a critical supply and communication line, but it also had facilities to produce 40,000 gallons of fresh water a day. That is no small consideration when fighting in the parched desert sands. So he set his sights on the coastal town and prepared to take it. Much like Bardia, it was ringed by anti-tank obstacles and barbed wire. Defending the town were 32,000 men, 200-plus guns, and 45 tanks. The perimeter was littered with gaps, though, making the seizure of the town much easier than the last. Just before dawn on January 21st, O'Connor initiated the assault with an artillery barrage, soon followed by a frontal infantry attack. He hoped to overwhelm the enemy, and it worked well enough. 36 hours later, Tobruk had fallen along with 25,000 prisoners and another 200 tanks. To add to their success, the soldiers also captured an enormous stockpile of food and water purification systems survived undamaged. Additionally, the port facilities received only minor damage, and once again a generous supply of booze was seized. The men of Western Desert Force were growing accustomed to seizing Italian loot. With Tobruk taken, O'Connor could now set his eyes on Benghazi, the critical port town and the last Italian stronghold in Cyrenica. Unfortunately, the rugged Jebel Akhtar range lay between him and his prize. The mountains, Mediterranean and pleasant compared to the surrounding desert, forced O'Connor to split his force. The infantry would move along the northern coastal road to attack Derna, while his armor would move south, below the range, to attack Mechli. By this point, Western Desert Force was ragged. They had fought in three major engagements and crossed hundreds of miles of desert. Only 50 medium and 95 light tanks survived, and O'Connor would need every one of them for his assault on Mechili. He knew he couldn't rest, though. Not only did he need to keep the heat on the Italians, but he also couldn't risk letting the staff in London decide that his force was needed in Greece before he finished the job in North Africa. Fortunately, the Italians never intended to hold out at Mechili and withdrew before a shot was fired. O'Connor didn't see the fortune in it, though. He wanted to capture the Italian supplies of fuel and water, but was denied by their ordered withdrawal. Instead, he had to take his armored column and wait for resupply before he could continue the drive westward. Meanwhile, the Australian infantry in the north would attack and seize Derna. With the two British columns advancing on them, the Italians chose to withdraw from eastern Libya entirely rather than defend it. They fought a successful delaying action at Derna as the rest of their forces attempted to withdraw from Benghazi en masse, but they weren't fast enough. On February 4th, O'Connor's main element, the 7th Armored Division, would resume its westward drive from Beta Farm. There, by only the thinnest of margins, they were able to cut off Bergonzoli's escape from Benghazi. As soon as he saw dust plumes rising to his right, O'Connor sent his armored cars racing ahead to block the coast road and hold off the Italian vanguard. Soon, the main body would arrive and prevent the Italian breakout. It was a close call, but O'Connor's gambit of dividing his force paid off. Had he arrived only hours later, the Italians may have been able to establish a blocking position strong enough to hold back O'Connor's beleaguered force. But on February 7, 1941, the Italian 10th Army surrendered and O'Connor messaged back to Wavel in Cairo, Fox killed in the open. All of eastern Libya had been captured and western desert force stood poised to advance the rest of the way to Tripoli. As O'Connor counted the spoils of his campaign, 
130,000 prisoners against only 2,000 casualties, 112 tanks, 216 guns, and 1,500 trucks captured, he received the word he had been dreading since the start of the campaign. Withdraw. Churchill wanted the Middle East Command to prepare to move to Greece. This seemingly inexplicable decision was the product of centuries of British doctrine and decades of experience in Winston Churchill. The Navy had long been the dominant service, and was the force that was to save the Empire. At least since the days of Napoleon, the fleet had been their wooden wall, and their army always fought alongside allies on the continent. In Churchill, the lessons of the First World War were overlearned. He saw firsthand the massive toll large battles on the continent could have, and he was determined not to pay that price again. Thus him and his government's proclivity for small, peripheral wars. To Americans in particular, this is bewildering. Our military doctrine dates back to Sherman and Grant, who finally defeated the Confederacy by hammering home with massive armies, not by fighting small peripheral campaigns, even if that is where they made their names. Unlike the British military, we like to go for the jugular and seek decisive battle. They preferred to keep the enemy off British shores and fight small colonial wars in the enemy's backwaters, and Greece offered just such an opportunity. Churchill was enamored with the Greeks' tenacity and wanted to help them fight off their Italian invaders. General Metaxes declined, out of fear that introduction of British troops would spur a German invasion. But he died unexpectedly, and Churchill was able to pressure his successor into allowing British troops to land in Greece. Now General O'Connor's small but capable force would be forced to sail to the other side of the sea and leave a skeleton force behind in Cyrenica. With victory in his grasp, Churchill had ensured that the war in North Africa would drag on for another two years. Little did anyone know that one of the greatest generals of the Second World War had just arrived on their doorstep, Erwin Rommel.